a number scattered around. Welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you. The way we go about this is one week we do something a little heavier, although I don't think tonight's will, I hope, won't seem very heavy. But uh, the pattern is uh, one week something sort of cerebral, intellectual, heavy, abstract, theoretical, and then the week to follow something practical, simple, that we apply to our lives. And uh, so every other week is a little heavier, every other week is lighter, and for the most part, people come to all. I trust that you will. Don't give a miss to that one that you don't think will be that interesting or looks too heavy for you. You'd be surprised how God will use the very one that you think won't be that much of a blessing to be a great blessing indeed. Now tonight, we deal with this subject, the gifts of the Spirit. And uh, there's a lot of interest in this, and I think it's something that has come up mostly in our century. Now, tell me if I'm wrong. Someone see me after the meeting or ask the question, but I do not know of any interest, or, you know, any concentrated, widespread interest in the gifts of the Spirit uh, by which we mainly mean 1 Corinthians 12. I do not know of any interest in the gifts of the Spirit prior to this century except perhaps in the earliest church. Uh, now, a man by the name of Montanus, who flourished around 200 A.D., uh, is known for having brought in an emphasis upon the Spirit. And he talked about immediate witness and revelation of the Spirit. And uh, he was looked at as rather weird. He was outside the camp. And... Uh, uh, it became known as Montanism, and there's no question but what you could call it the ancient charismatic movement. Now, the funny thing is, we might not have ever heard of it, except they had one convert that was famous, and that was none other than Tertullian. Tertullian who was a very, very respected theologian, apologist, and it was he who coined the term persona, person, with regard to the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we talk about the three persons of the Trinity. Well, Tertullian is the first to use that phrase. So Tertullian was very respected. Lo and behold, Tertullian became a Montanist. And that is probably what made Montanism famous. But because of that, he was under a cloud, and, and whereas you have St. Anselm, you've got uh, uh, St. Augustine, you've got St. Athanasius, there's no St. Tertullian because the church would not recognize him. He went too far outside the camp. And... Uh, and this is often the way uh, movements of the Spirit are. They're outside the camp. The mainstream will have little or nothing to do with it. Now, you say, well, wasn't there an emphasis upon the Holy Spirit during the Great Reformation and the Great Awakening? Well, the answer is certainly yes. Uh, but uh, as far as I know, not with any reference to the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, Calvin was the first to emphasize the Holy Spirit. 
He talked about the effectual call of the Spirit. And he emphasized in the main what he called the inner testimony or the hidden testimony, internal witness of the Spirit by which we know we are saved and by which we know the Bible is the Word of God. So we're indebted to Calvin for that. But as far as an emphasis upon the gifts, I do not know that they came up uh, since Montanism uh, until uh, this century. In the days of uh, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, there was an emphasis upon the Spirit in that there were great manifestations of the Spirit. People were struck dead, unconscious. Uh, you perhaps know the story that George Whitfield went to the fields. He didn't preach in churches. He went to the fields and thousands came. And as he would preach, uh, such power was present that they would be slain. And in those days, it wasn't because anybody laid hands on them and they fell backwards. It was because they were just prostrate on the ground. And John Wesley criticized Whitfield and said, how dare you let that happen? That's fanaticism. And Whitfield replied, if you try to stamp out the wildfire, you also stamp out what is true. So you have to let it go. And I've often thought it was very wise advice. And uh, John Wesley took Whitfield's advice. And when he went to the fields, the same thing happened. People just struck unconscious under the power of the Spirit. It happened in the Cane Ridge Revival in Kentucky in 1801. But still, as far as I know, no emphasis upon what we call gift of healing or tongues or miracles, prophecy, word of knowledge. It didn't happen until 1906, this year. And what became known as the Pentecostal Movement uh, took off as a result of a phenomenal outpouring of the Spirit in Azusa Street, Los Angeles, California. How many have ever heard of the Azusa Street meeting? Could I see your hands? Well, quite a number of you have heard of it. Now, uh, different points of view emerged. Uh, the baptism of the Spirit was emphasized and tended, not always, but tended to be equated with speaking in tongues. And parallel with this, there was an emphasis upon healing. How many of you have ever heard of the Four Square Gospel Church? A number of you have. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the four points were salvation, sanctification, baptism of the Spirit, and healing. Uh, somebody may tell me I've missed a point there, but I think that is correct. Now, the charismatic movement, as we know it today, took off in the 1960s. Uh, I don't know for sure who is the father of it. Uh, I've heard of different names of, of people uh, who say so-and-so is responsible for it. You could probably name four or five. I spoke in a place this week, and a man came up to me. He said that he was the father of it, and I'd never heard of him. Uh, but someone said, well, he had something to do with it. They said he's, you know, he's a nice man, and uh, once, <laughs> once something, you know, is popular, a lot of people wanted to take the credit for it. But the truth is, it, I think, it happened rather spontaneously all over the world. And uh, I know in 1963, uh, when uh, Louise and I were in Ohio, a man who claimed to be of the Reformed Church, Reformed Church, who spoke in tongues, and that was unusual, 
uh, in those days, uh, came and, and wanted to talk to a group of ministers. In those days, they called it the glossolalia movement. Uh, but nowadays, it's more uh, the charismatic movement. Uh, it comes from a Greek word that looks like this, charismata. And uh, it literally, when you translate it into English, means grace, gift. And so that's what the Greek word means. Well, it's not very clear. I guess uh, when we have the spotlights on, we turn this on, it's hard to see both. Um, now, there's a little rivalry. There's some who will admit to it, others deny it. But I think I'm right that there's just a little rivalry between the Pentecostalists and the Charismatic Movement. Do you know why? Well, I think it's because the Pentecostals feel they were the ones who stood the test, went through the persecution, looked at as the scum of the earth for many, many years, and had no respect, generally speaking, in the eyes of the mainstream. And then now come the Charismatics, who are Anglicans, brethren, name it. There's not a denomination, probably, unaffected by it. And, it's, and, and so you've got the Pentecostalists who, who feel a little sense of rivalry. I, I, they've, some of them admitted that to me. And we talk mainly here of denominations. Now, Pentecostalism became rather denominational. I think the main ones in this country are the Elam Church and the Assemblies of God. And I have an excellent relationship with both uh, this year, I, well, two days ago, I just got back from Prestatyn in North Wales where I addressed the Assemblies of God uh, conference. And, and I've been invited uh, verbally to attend the Elam Church uh, conference next year. And I have uh, highest respect for the Pentecostals. Uh, but the charismatic movement is probably interdenominational and has touched every denomination. Some, uh, not all, equate tongues with the baptism of the Spirit, and others do not. But the emphasis centers largely, in any case, on the gifts of the Spirit. Well, if anybody asks, why deal with this matter in our school of theology? Uh, <coughs> excuse me, I give one or two reasons. The first is that the charismatic movement has forced the whole of the Christian world to take a look at the Holy Spirit in a new way. And uh, you cannot deny it. They forced us to do it. Second, it is my view that God has raised up the charismatic movement and we're the better for it. I reject those who think that the charismatic movement has done harm, uh, more harm than good. Uh, perhaps it's caused uh, some splits here and there. Uh, any work of God's going to do that. But I uh, generally affirm the charismatic movement as being of God. I don't think it's the ultimate. I'm looking for something beyond anything that we've seen. But I do believe that the charismatic movement has been raised up of God. And I would be afraid to be anti-charismatic. I would be afraid to be anti-charismatic. The third reason I deal with this subject is that we need to look at what the Bible teaches and not get our opinions 
on this matter secondhand. All right, the first point I want to make tonight is that there is a difference between having spiritual gifts and being spiritual. This is elementary. We've already had a lesson on what is spirituality, but this is so important. You see, it is possible to be spiritual and not have any of these gifts of the Spirit that I'm going to be dealing with tonight. I don't want anybody here to feel that you're second class, you're second rate, that you're not spiritual if you don't speak in tongues or you don't have this or that gift. It is possible to have true spirituality and not have a single gift of the Spirit as outlined in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10. This is what many don't seem to understand. It is assumed by many that if you have a gift of the Spirit, especially speaking in tongues, you are spiritual. I say wrong. The church of Corinth had those who spoke in tongues. In fact, that is why we have 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 and 14. If it weren't for the fact that you had those in the church of Corinth who not only spoke in tongues but said we are the spiritual ones, that was why Paul had to deal with the subject of the spiritual gifts. And he called them children. And he called them carnal. All right. Spirituality does not relate to spiritual gifts necessarily. Spirituality, as we saw in an early lesson, is being tuned in to the Holy Spirit. That means having the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, faith, temperance. Far, temperance, far more important to have love, joy, peace, and so forth than to have the gifts of the Spirit. Because you can have the gifts of the Spirit, you can have the gift of tongues and not have love. And it's having love that makes you spiritual, not having the gift of tongues. And so the, the, what Paul calls the most excellent way is love. And he had just treated the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, about uh, 15 years ago, Louise, our children and I were in Holland, and uh, we went to Harlem, and I uh, wanted to see The Hiding Place. How many have read the book Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom? Well, I just went, we went there and, and saw the actual place, you know, there in this jewelry store, and, and uh, I asked the people, any chance of meeting Corey Ten Boom? And they said, well, she doesn't see people. I said, oh, please, we've come all the way from England. Well, they said, we've got people coming from all over the world, they want to meet her. And uh, I said, please? Well, they said, well, we'll phone her and see. And she says, come over, and they gave us the address of her house. And it was quite a wonderful time, spent about an hour with her. So I said to her, is it true? And this was back in 1974, when, you know, we're talking now tw nearly 20 years ago. And I said, is it true that you believe in the gifts of the Spirit? And her reply was, yes, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. But don't forget 1 Corinthians 13. Those were her words. And I've never forgotten that. And that's the point I want to make tonight. The most excellent way is Paul's description for love, having just treated the gifts of the Spirit. So... 
It is possible, therefore, to have spiritual gifts and not be spiritual. And I want to talk about Romans 11, 29, which says the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And I'll come back to that. Now, the fact was that what led Paul to discuss the gifts in the Spirit was the fact that there were those speaking in tongues, and they took that to mean uh, that they were spiritual. And they also felt that the charismata, the grace gifts, uh, was the most important thing. And they emphasized tongues as proof of their spirituality. One does not necessarily need to be spiritual at all to receive any gift of the Spirit. Now that may shock you, but it's true. Uh, it doesn't follow that because you manifest love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, that that will guarantee you will get any gift of the Spirit. In Romans eleven twenty nine, Paul said the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. That's the way the authorized version reads. The NIV reads, the gifts and calling of God are with are irrevocable, irrevocable. Now, the, you say, well, which is true? Well, it comes from uh, a Greek word that uh, is metanoia, which means repentance, change of mind. Uh, but when it uh, is used as it was in the Greek, it's impossible to know whether you should translate it without repentance or irrevocable. And I've concluded that it means both, and by which I mean, first, no repentance guarantees the gifts of the Spirit. You may seek the gifts of the Spirit and say, well, I'm going to repent. You can repent of your sins and be saved, but you can't repent and get the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are just sovereignly given. Now, you can seek them and you can pray for them, and Paul says, covet them. But at the end of the day, there's not anything you can do to bring them off. So that's what it means without repentance. But then it's a word that equally means irrevocable. What that means is once God gives them to you, they're yours. So that no spirituality means that you hold on to them because you hold on to them anyway. They're given to you. That's what Romans eleven twenty nine means. All right. What often happens, sadly, is that the gifts of the Spirit, especially tongues, tend to camouflage one's true spiritual state. Do you know what I mean by that? It, it covers up so that people can't really tell what you're like. Uh, if a person uh, speaks in tongues, uh, you may say, oh, that's a real spiritual person. It could be. And so it is possible that the most godly people that live, some of them have the gift of tongues, and you would respect them. But then there are others who speak in tongues who aren't spiritual, but they still have that gift. And so that's the point. A person can hide behind their gift and make you think they're spiritual. They may not be, because it was given sovereignly, not based on how deeply you repented, and it won't be taken away from you. So it doesn't prove that you're spiritual. Do you see what I mean? And this is what happened at Corinth, and it is true today, as it was then, that uh, some will tell you, unless you speak in tongues, you are not spiritual. Have, 
Have you, how many of you have heard it said that unless you speak in tongues, you're not spiritual? Can I see your hands? Quite a number. Well, it's not true. And what often happens, what often happens is that the person who does have the gift of tongues will go to another and say, well, you ought to have it. And they say, well, I don't have it. Well, you can have it. And, and they, they become evangelistic about it. And they're almost more anxious to see another Christian speak in tongues than they are to see a lost person converted. And uh, I know Calvinists this way that would rather see an Arminian uh, made a Calvinist than they are to see a lost person saved. So it's, this kind of thing can happen, uh, whether you're charismatic, Pentecostal, or or, or hyper-Calvinist, uh, you become more interested in making another... You fish in the Christian pond, in other words, to try to get a person persuaded to your point of view. And uh, it's unfair. It's unfair. And this was what was going on in Corinth. So here are two things to remember. Number one, you can be spiritual and not speak in tongues. And number two, you can speak in tongues and not be spiritual. But then I ought, to add a, I ought to add a third. You can speak in tongues and be spiritual. And uh, some of the most godly people I know speak in tongues. But the proof that you have the Holy Spirit is not that you speak in tongues, but that you confess Jesus as Lord. Because 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And why do you suppose Paul put that at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12? He did so, so that anybody who felt inferior spiritually could say, don't tell me I don't have the Holy Spirit. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And I really believe that. Well, Paul says, you couldn't have believed that if you didn't have the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is making it so anybody can go to another and say, See there, I do so have the Holy Spirit. You said I didn't. Paul says I do because I confess that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And so many Corinthians were regarded as spiritually inferior because they did not speak in tongues. Paul says none is inferior who has the Holy Spirit and all who say Jesus is Lord or Jesus is God have the Spirit. Now I want to make a second point tonight. And this is going to be very helpful to somebody. And the point is this. There is an overlapping between the natural and the supernatural. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 says... There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, uh, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, uh, it's, it's not all black or white, because your natural gift, God gave you. The supernatural gift, like healing, miracles, or tongues, God gave you. But one is natural, one is supernatural. Well, why do you say it's natural if it God gave, gave it to you? All of us have gifts by common grace. That means God's goodness to all men. 
God giving grace commonly to everybody. And it refers to the fact that you're born with a certain gift. You have been endowed with certain abilities, talents by birth. God made you like you are. Not because you're so spiritual, but because God made you that way. All right, what is common grace? God's goodness to all men, whether or not they're Christians. John Calvin called it a special grace within nature, but it's not being saved. This means that one may have an unusual ability, which is natural, yet it was uniquely given by God. And some who have never been converted have an unusual talent or an intellect. Uh, Albert Einstein probably had the highest IQ that anybody knows of. Perhaps uh, Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo would come close or maybe had greater IQs. I don't know how you would know now. But to have an IQ, and I'm told that Einstein's IQ was 212. Now, 100 is average. If it's below 70, it's inferior intelligence. If it's 110, you're above average. 130 is genius. 160 would be very, very rare. Very, very rare. Einstein, 212. It you know, boggles the mind. As far as we know, he wasn't a converted man. And you've always got scientists or musicians who, whether it be Arthur Rubinstein, who was one of my heroes as I grew up, the great pianist, Yehudi Menuhin, still alive, as far as I know, is not a Christian. But look at the gift to play the violin like Yehudi Menuhin. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I got Yehudi Menuhin's autograph. He came to Huntington, West Virginia, right across the river from Ashland, Kentucky, and I got his autograph. It was a great thrill for me, uh, about 15, no, it's been... 18 or 19 years ago, Louise and I heard him in Oxford and went up and introduced ourselves. And I said, I've met you once before. Uh, he didn't remember it. Surprise, surprise. Uh, he was more interested in, in Louise than he was me, actually, uh, which uh, made me see he's normal. Uh, <laughs> but I, mean, I admire this man's gift to play the violin. As far as I know, he's not a Christian. But you'd have to say that's a God-given talent. You see, there are some who are converted and also have unusual talent and intellects. I wish God saved more geniuses. Why do they all have to be so ordinary like you and me? But Paul, when he wrote his letter to Corinth, he said, you see, you're calling. Not many are wise, not many noble are called. So it's ordinary people usually that are saved. Once in a great while, a St. Augustine or an Athanasius is converted. But ordinarily, that's not the way it is. So the point is, suppose you're here tonight, and there's probably one or two here, that you've got unusual intellect. You've got an unusual intellect, and you've got unusual talent. But that is not because you're a Christian. You may say, oh, I just, it's because, you know, God's just blessed me. I love the Lord. He's blessed. 
appreciate your modesty or your humility and you want to give God the praise and you should give him the praise, but it's owing to common grace, not saving grace. After all, God is our creator and all gifts by virtue of creation come from the same God who saves us. So that you need to see that you have a gift, God gave it to you. Now, when we are converted, we should expect that the gifts that are ours by virtue of creation should be used to the Lord. So that if God has given you a good mind or an ability, whether it's to, to type letters or answer the telephone, or uh, you are a medical doctor or a barrister or solicitor, and, and God's given you that ability, well, now that you're a Christian, you want to give it to God and uh, thank Him for it and use that gift. We then might call them spiritual because you're a Christian, and yet they're really quite natural. If you weren't a Christian, you'd still have that ability. All right, this very point that I'm making, it's not original, that's what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 7. It's translated different. It's this word, uh, diaresis, which means differences, distinctions, distributions, or dealings out. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now, here's an important point. Listen. The word, as translated difference, in this context, refers to the gifts being distributed among different individuals rather than to the distinctions between the gifts themselves. So the point is, gifts are distributed among different persons. It's not that there is a particular gift called such and such and he will give that gift to you and that gift to you. Now that may come out and that may be the case sometimes but the point Paul wants to make at the beginning it is not the gifts that God will use it is you God will use. So that the spiritual gift that may come to you whether it's the gift of discerning of spirits or the gift of helps, the end of 1 Corinthians 12, will come to you who also have some kind of natural gift, so that the spiritual and the natural overlap. That means that your own gift or anointing will be inimitable, cannot be imitated by any other person. It's you alone. You're unique. All right. Every Christian is unique. Now the question often comes up, how many gifts are there? How many of you believe there are nine gifts of the Spirit? Can I see your hands? There's one or two hands that go up. All right, well that's, that's how many you have if you look at verses 8, 9, and 10. There are nine. But then you get down to verse 28, and he adds one, gifts of administration. And ability to help others. Those two hadn't been listed. So now we're up to 11. And then uh, you look at Romans 12, uh, verses 7 and 8, and uh, you find gifts here that haven't been mentioned. 
Uh, I'll just uh, read a little bit of that to you. Romans 12, verses 7 and 8. He said, uh, uh, if it is serving, let him serve. Well, you could say, well, that's a gift of helps. But here's one. If it is teaching, let him teach. That wasn't specifically mentioned in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 8 to 10. Here's one called encouraging. Another uh, called contributing to the needs of others. And, and here's one, let him, if it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So you end up with, well, maybe there then are about 12, 13 gifts or 14. And then the situation gets more complicated. You look at Ephesians chapter 4 and you find uh, there's the gift to be pastor or evangelist. So where do you, where do you end up? So if you really want to know how many gifts there are, how many gifts of the Spirit there are, the answer is there are as many gifts of the Spirit as there are Christians. Every single one of us is unique because there is an overlapping of the way God made me with what God may sovereignly give me. And all Paul does in 1 Corinthians 12, is to give examples of how the Holy Spirit can manifest himself. And these are ways. One other point. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 7, flattens the distinction between the charismatic and non-charismatic gifts. It's another way of saying whether it's natural or spiritual, whether it's a, a, what you were born with or you developed as a talent as you grew up, and what God gives you. And so the word charismatic, which comes from the Greek word charismata, uh, literally means uh, grace gift, grace gift. Non-charismatic, natural gift, as in ability or talent. Now here's some more distinctions. One may be endowed with a charismatic gift, such as tongues or healing, and be somewhat weak in natural gifts. You may not have any ability in terms of to be a scientist or a nurse or a doctor. Uh, it is possible, and this is to encourage anybody here. You say, you know, I don't have A-levels, I don't have O-levels, I wasn't good in maths, I wasn't good in science, I wasn't good in geography, I can't spell. And you feel, you know, when I was talking about common grace a while ago and, and, and high IQ, you say, when you said 70 is pretty low, you say, well, that's me. But do you know, God may give you some of the greatest gifts of all. The gift of miracles, discernment. God can do that, you see. So the point is, you can be endowed with a, a charismatic gift, like tongues or healing, and be weak in the natural gifts. And, and one may have a superabundance of natural gifts, we sometimes call it talent, and be devoid of spiritual gifts. Now, an apostle in the old, uh, in, in the old days, in, in, the, in the earliest church, uh, needed to have both. But not all Christians have a lot of both. And yet we are all required to have the fruits of the Spirit, the main one being love of 1 Corinthians 13. And this is why Corrie Ten Boom said to us, yes, 
The gifts of the Spirit are taught, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. But don't forget 1 Corinthians 13, because this is what Paul wants us to see as being more important. But I'm emphasizing the gifts tonight because I think there's a place to do this. But I do so urging you to put them in perspective. Now, having referred to gifts all evening, uh, I will confuse you a little bit. I hope I don't, but let me say that I prefer the word anointing. Anointing. And the reason I prefer that word is because the word anointing combines the natural and the supernatural. So that if we refer to one's anointing, we refer to the fact that naturally uh, he can play the piano or naturally he can uh, lead a group, he can speak in public. Naturally he has a certain way with people. Naturally he's very friendly. Naturally he's good at greeting visitors. Naturally he's one that just wants to, to, to sweep floors. That's the way he is. He just loves it naturally. But then spiritually, he's been given a certain deposit of grace so that what he is naturally uh, can only be called supernatural because it flows in the Spirit. And it's best, I think, to refer to it as an anointing. So you may have an anointing to teach or to counsel or to play an instrument, but it's being combined with a natural gift with the Spirit's power. What is your anointing? It is what comes easily. That is the key. What comes easily? If you struggle, then it's probably not your anointing. Jackie Pullinger made a statement to me. When she said it, I knew I was getting a profound comment. I wrote it down. She said, to the spiritual person, the supernatural seems natural. Therefore, when you, you see a person who functions doing a certain thing, you think, how on earth do they do it? But that's as easy to them as, as another person uh, reading a newspaper. It just comes easily. And this is something that I shall emphasize next week when we deal with this question, how to discover what is your gift. And the, the big thing is when it's easy, when you have to force it, work at it, uh, and worry all day. Uh, our organist, Ray Knight, where'd Ray go? The rapture comedy gone to heaven? Well, almost. You're, you're closer than the rest of us. Did you worry all day long whether you might, if you play the organ tonight, uh, just make such a mess of things, and you just worried all day? You couldn't sleep last night saying, boy, I'm, I'm the organist at Westminster Chapel. You don't even think about it, do you? It comes easily. You see, that's your anointing. Now, if I said you had to preach here Sunday morning, you, you wouldn't sleep Saturday night. Yeah. So we all have, whatever your anointing is, you'll be able to do it with ease. It's the way of least fatigue. All right, we're going to stop now and uh, go through 1 Corinthians 12 and Look at the various uh, uh, gifts, which I now want to call anointings, wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, and I hope that this will be uh, an edifying evening, but I've, all that I've set up to now is to, is to put these gifts in context. All right, we'll come back in four or five minutes. Bill, over to you.
10 of 1 Corinthians 12 and then drop down toward the end of the chapter and uh, then wrap up the evening. Now the first that Paul lists is the anointing of wisdom. The anointing of wisdom. And I would define wisdom like this. The intelligent use of knowledge. The intelligent use of what you already know. And that would refer to three things. What you say, your tongue, how to say it, having tact, and when to speak, timing. And this is what we sometimes refer to as presence of mind. There have been times when, I believe, God gave me presence of mind. Presence of mind. I just, well, it was there. I said it. It may be in the vestry when someone's coming to see me. I've known it to happen when I was on the spot. I've sometimes prayed for it on Friday nights during the question time, and, and God deserts me and gives me the answer 20 minutes after the meeting is over, and I'll think, Lord, why didn't you tell me that then? Uh, he doesn't always do it. Uh, so I, I'm sure it is true to say nobody has this all of the time. And it's, you know, to have wisdom all the time could only lead us uh, to conceit, I would have thought. And you'd have to be awfully spiritual, uh, more spiritual than I am, uh, in order to have a lot of wisdom and have it all the time. So I would define the anointing of wisdom as presence of the mind of the Spirit. And uh, there are just times, perhaps you've known it, when God just gave it to you. And you just stood back and you think, wow, I can't believe I said that. Thank you, Lord. And when you have it, you'll find that you are impartial, you may have to stand up against your best friend or someone who's very close to you. Uh, I'm close to our deacons, and, and uh, I think it hasn't, I haven't needed this that I know of, uh, but there may be a time when uh, I would have to say, brethren, uh, this is what I feel about this. And it might uh, hurt somebody's feelings among those uh, deacons. Uh, it's a chance you take. Uh, someone has pointed out, that uh, as close as Jesus was to Peter, Jesus once said, get behind me, Satan. And you, and, and you mustn't uh, uh, ever uh, be so close to anybody that the Lord can't use you to speak to them. And uh, so it's being unbiased, it is being impartial. I would have thought uh, one of the greatest illustrations of the gift of wisdom is from 1, King, uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon had asked for wisdom, and here's the story. Many of you will have heard it many times, but I just want you to listen to this. 1 Kings 3:16. Two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of them said, My lord, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was there with me. The third day after my child was born, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. No one was in the house with us but the two of us. During the night, this woman's son died because she lay on him. So she got up in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while I, your servant, was asleep. She put him by her breast and 
put her dead son by my breast. The next morning I got up to nurse my son and he was dead. When I looked at him closely in the morning light, I saw that it wasn't the son I had born. The other woman said, no, the living one is my son, the dead one is yours. The first one insisted, no, the dead one is yours, the living one is mine. So they argued before the king. How would you like that situation? Here comes one of the most awesome moments in all holy writ. The king said, this one says, my son is alive and yours is dead. While the one says, no, your son is dead and mine is alive. The king said, bring me a sword. So they brought a sword for the king. He gave an order, cut the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. The woman whose son was alive was filled with compassion for her son and said to the king, Please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. But the other said, Neither I nor you shall have him. Cut him in two. Then the king gave this ruling. Give the living baby to the first woman. Do not kill him. She is his mother. When all Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw he had wisdom from God to administer justice. Well, that is just an example. When God gives you that, we're not talking about knowledge. We're talking about the use of knowledge and impartiality, insight into what to do in the moment. Knowing what to say next. All right, we proceed to the next one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, there's one given, the message of wisdom to another, the message of knowledge. Now, uh, the Greek clearly says word of knowledge, but it needs to be said that at the bottom of any anointing is revelation. So keep in mind, uh, when we talk about uh, the gifts of the Spirit or the anointing, uh, a key word is revelation. Revelation. It's what God reveals. He shows you something. And this is at the bottom. Your revelatory gift will bring out your anointing. And even though there's an overlapping of the natural and the supernatural, at bottom there will be a revelatory gift where without any fatigued or working it up or anxiety, you just know what you're able to do. All right? Word of knowledge. Uh, you either have it or you don't. It comes without struggling. Now, what is knowledge? Well, the answer is knowledge is information. But the anointing of knowledge in this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, is a spiritual knowledge. That's important. It does not refer to arts or science. I have not known a case yet that anybody who had a gift of word of knowledge was suddenly able to do physics or algebra. I remember a few years ago, somebody, I don't know whether it came from the Germans or the Japanese, but they had this idea that uh, you could put a tape on and uh, it could be Greek, let's say, and uh, put it under your pillow and go to sleep. And in the night as you slept, 
you just hear, you know, the Greek alphabet and all this, and you wake up the next day and you speak Greek. Uh, it was a great idea, and I suppose they sold a few, uh, but I don't think it worked, or it would have stuck. And uh, so when you pray for a gift of the Spirit, uh, maybe you are praying that God will help you with this exam, and He may do that. But I think in fairness, all you can ask God to do is to give you recall of what you've learned. I do not know of a case yet that God gave an ability to do algebra or physics or Chinese to one who hadn't first studied algebra, physics, and Chinese. So we're not talking about arts or sciences. We're talking about spiritual knowledge, divine information to help us spiritually as Christians. Now, this anointing may be either general or particular. General is what's happening right now. I'm teaching. I don't think you'd call this preaching, but it's certainly teaching. And it could be that through the medium of this school of theology, I am able to give information that will help you spiritually. It won't help you uh, pass an O-level or A-level, but I'm hoping it gives you spiritual knowledge. And oftentimes, through preaching, uh, it's not just me, any minister here knows the same thing to happen, how God can use preaching. I said I was at the Assemblies of God conference this week, uh, literally two minutes after uh, the taxi let me out to when I went to check in uh, to the place to find where I was to stay, and they told me to walk down this road, and I'm walking down this road, a man comes up to me, and he says, last year, I came to this conference with six questions. You spoke one night, and all six were answered, just like that. And I thought, wow, I'd been praying God would use me again this year. That's going to be a, a tall order to, to match that again. That, I, and then he thanked me and walked away, and I may never see him again. I don't know what his six questions were. But apparently, God used me, and I didn't know it. So the point is, the word of knowledge can be in operation when the person doesn't know he is giving a word of knowledge. Same can be true with the prophetic word, which we come to in a moment. But then there is a particular gift of word of knowledge, uh, which uh, I have seen used in my own life uh, a little bit, but not often, when you have a specific word uh, for one person, and it's for him or for her only. I uh, remember some, uh, well, it's been uh, two years ago, a lady came into the vestry, and uh, she was very upset about something. She was in, she was in grief, that's what it was, uh, over the loss of her husband. And... Uh, and I thought, what am I going to do? I started running to get somebody to come in, come and pray with this lady. And she was so distraught that I just, you know, bowed my head. And she didn't know what I was doing. I said, Lord, I've got, what am I going to do? I need to help this lady. She was sobbing uncontrollably and, and wanting me to help her. The Lord gave me a verse from Isaiah chapter 54. And he gave me the actual verse. And I turned to it, 
If I really had faith, I would have had her turn to it, but I turned to it myself first. And I thought, my word, this fits this lady. And I said to her, while you're there, God just said to me to turn to Isaiah 54, and I gave the verse. And I'm going to read this to you. And you tell me whether this fits. When I read it to her, she said, are you saying that the Lord told you to turn that? I said, yes, and I didn't even know what it was. He just said, Isaiah 54, verse... Mm. She said, this is wonderful. Her face changed. She left that vestry, a changed woman. Now, that's word of knowledge. I wish I could say that happens to me every day. I mean, come up and try me at the end of the service. I, I, I don't claim to have that gift. I'm showing you how it can work. It doesn't happen to me often. All right, let's move to the next one. Anointing of faith. And so he says, to another, faith by the same Spirit. Now, he doesn't mean saving faith because he's already talking to people who are saved. And the apostle never questions whether these people in Corinth are Christians. Never once. Calls them carnal, calls them childish. He scolds them, but he gives them this, they're saved. So he's not talking about saving faith. Neither is he saying this living by faith. He's not referring to living by faith, which every Christian is required to do. We have to trust the Lord every day. That's not what he means. It's special faith. Given under unusual circumstances. For example, in extreme trial. When you go through a trial, that when it first hits you, your immediate reaction is to say, I cannot go through this. And at first glance, and you survey the situation, you say, this is too much for me. Well, that's the devil, you see, making you think that. But what do you do? You get on your knees, you turn to the Lord, and lo and behold, you're finding grace to cope, and you can't believe it. You just can't believe it yourself. It may be through grief. It may be uh, disappointing news. Uh, or it may be a satanic attack. The Bible talks about the evil day. The evil day when the devil just pounces upon you. And you think, you're not going to make it. Well, what it is, is God just gives you special grace. Moses had this promise as your days, so will your strength be. And God gives you unusual faith in a particular moment. And I've known it to happen. I can recall times when, when I was in the uh, severe trial and I didn't see how I was going to cope. And then at the last moment, grace was given and I just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Well, that's what we mean. Uh, you could call it spectacular faith. Uh, when you have to perform some extraordinary work. Hebrews chapter 11 describes the people of faith. Uh, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, David, Elijah. And they do st stupendous things, spectacular things by faith. It's not talking about 
how to become a Christian. That's saving faith. He assumes you're saved. But it's a special gift of faith for an extreme situation. Like all anointings, it is sovereignly given. And like all anointings, it is given to those who need it. Many of you will know the name George Mueller, who was the great man of faith of the last century. And I uh, was influenced by him a lot when I was a child because someone gave me a book, a biography of George Mueller. And I've stood in awe of him. And uh, he had unusual faith. He was a very simple man. Uh, He tells the story on one occasion that he was uh, going to America on, on, on a ship and it was due to be in New York tomorrow evening and uh, he noticed the ship had come to a stop and he went to the captain and says, why is the ship stopped? And the captain says, look out. You see that fog? I'm not moving. We're not moving one inch in this fog. Well, George Mueller said, well, I've got to be in New York tomorrow night. And the captain says, you will not be in New York tomorrow night. George Mueller says, I will be. (laughs) The captain says, not as long as I'm captain of this ship. You may be here for days. George Mueller said, I believe that God will clear the fog. Well, the captain says, more power to you. Mueller says, will you pray with me? captain said, well, it's all right if you want to pray. He said, George Mueller prayed. The captain told this. said it was such a simple prayer. There was not much to it. It lasted, you know, about six seconds. And... Mueller got up from his knees and said, I believe it's clear outside. What do you think? Captain looked, and it was perfectly clear. And they made it back. And he made it for the Friday night service the next day. All right. Unusual. And you can read Mueller's biography. and You you just see that he was given faith. He had uh, an orphanage. And uh, they, they just lived on faith. They would need so much bread and so much milk. And... And they didn't know where it was coming from. Every day it would just come. That's unusual, you see. It's not living by faith. It was a gift of faith. Now, funnily enough, George Mueller denied that he had the gift of faith. But he couldn't be wrong or right about everything. And so, (laughs) obviously, he did have. The anointing of healing. I admit, I admit, I'd love to have this. Maybe one day God will give this to me. Uh, Now this is nothing more, surely, than a perpetuation, an extension of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus healed people. Uh, Early Pentecostals uh, and some Charismatics put healing in the doctrine of the atonement. Now we had a lesson on the atonement a few weeks ago. uh, And they believe that God saves, sanctifies, and heals. It is in the atonement as a provision, but not as the chief reason Jesus died. And the reason I say that is this. All who trust Christ's death are saved, but not all who trust Christ's death are healed. So when you say healing's in the atonement, you've got to clarify what you mean by that. All right? Healing, I would define as when disease or defect in the physical body is removed... And the natural process of cure is restored, sometimes gradually, sometimes suddenly. Uh, 
Colin Dye, who's a very good friend of mine. He's minister of Kensington Temple. And he said that just last week at Bogner Regis, when he was preaching on a Friday night, that uh, a woman in a wheelchair had been in a wheelchair for four years with rheumatoid arthritis. And her uh, wrists were in such pain that she could hardly move her wrists and, and, and she couldn't walk. And uh, they said those around her knew that tonight was her night to be healed. And they all just knew it. She knew it. And uh, he didn't. He was preaching. But in the service, uh, she got up and walked. And the place must have you know, gone wild with excitement. And they said the next morning at breakfast, she was even 100% better than the night before. And the Butlins people all knew about her because they'd seen her coming in every day in the wheelchair. And here she comes walking in. And uh, that's more than a healing, that's a miracle. I'm going to come back to, to what I mean by that when we look at miracles in the next verse. But what we mean by anointing of healing, it is distinguished from ordinary medical skill. Now, God can use doctors to heal. And thank God for doctors. But that is at the level of common grace, you see. Thank God for penicillin. Thank God for aspirin. Don't be ashamed to take it if you need it. Some are fanatics and say, I will not take an aspirin. Well, if I have a headache, I will. Uh, because God's given aspirins. Uh, and uh, God's given penicillin. He's given medical doctors. Uh, and God can heal that way. But the anointing of healing is not that. It is something that God does. Well, you say, well, why believe in healing? What's the value? Well, people who don't need to be healed are the ones often who don't believe in it. But the value is when you're in pain, uh, you, you hope that it, that it can happen. And the value of healing is that relief of pain or prolong, and, and or the prolonging of life uh, will demonstrate the power of God's name. And it brings glory to God. And... Uh, uh, we in Westminster Chapel are hoping that one day God will give us that. Uh, he may do it. It'll, if he does, it won't be because we deserve it. It'll just be because graciously he be bestows it on us. We've had two or three healing services, and we've had uh, some reports of people being healed. Um, God's given us just tokens. Well, what about miracles? That's the next one listed. Well, a miracle I would define as the extraordinary that cannot be explained naturally. There are three Greek words, signs, wonders, miracles. The word for signs is used 77 times, wonders 16 times, miracles 120 times. It may be anything from an answer to prayer to an awesome providence to God's raw power. So you can call a miracle uh, anything that God does suddenly. Uh, healing is usually gradual. Miracle is usually sudden and may refer to an even casting out a devil. Uh, somebody interviewed me last week at Skagness. He's doing a book on prayer. And he wanted to know if I'd ever had a sudden answer to prayer. Sudden answer to prayer. And I said, I don't think so. And then I remembered something. Last August... Louise and I were in Orlando, Florida, in, uh, near Disney World. It was on a Saturday, the height of the season, and you're talking 
probably 100,000 people just in one little area, and we were in the area where there must be 50 hotels right next to each other. And my dad and stepmother had come down from Georgia. My dad, 83 years old, and we were to meet them at a hotel on that street. We went to that hotel because I was preaching for the First Baptist Church of Orlando, and they put me in this hotel. But when I went there, I found out there were two hotels by that name, and they put me in the one downtown Orlando. My dad was going to be coming to this hotel, and because of his age, and it was blistering hot, I said, he'll get so confused, and he won't know where to come. And I said, Louis, I don't know what we're going to do. Come, they'll be here from Georgia, and they'll spend hours. We're going to miss them. I said, let's just pray right now. And we were praying, and I had my eyes open because I was having to drive. I said, Lord, let us find... Uh, well, there's a limit to my faith. I said, Lord, let us find Dad and Abby's now in Jesus' name. I said, look, there they are. They were across the street. And you're, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. I call that a miracle. Uh, next, anointing of prophecy. I would define prophecy as immediate revelation from God or knowledge that is beyond sense perception. In the Old Testament, you had two levels, the ordinary gifts, as with King Saul, and then the extraordinary, as with Samuel or Elijah. Uh, and so, I don't know all that is meant by King Saul's gift of prophesying. Uh, uh, but the extraordinary is like with Samuel, none of his words fell to the ground. Elijah, he could just say to King Ahab, it won't rain for three years. Or Elisha, who knew what was going on in the king's bedroom. Some believe that the apostles succeeded the extraordinary Old Testament prophets. Uh, it's another subject, we won't go into that tonight. There are two levels of prophecy, generally speaking. First is preaching, when God uses the word in an unusually relevant manner. <coughs> I've hinted at that already tonight. The other is word of knowledge, when God gives an accurate word for a specific person or situation. In this way, word of knowledge and, and prophecy often overlap. But with this difference, the prophetic may include a predictive element and predict what will happen. Uh, Agabus predicted famine, and it came. And I know of stories I could share with you tonight, uh, but we'll move on because of time. The anointing of discernment. Uh, discerning of spirits. This refers to the ability to make a distinction between spirits. Uh, for example, the demonic, what is of the flesh, and what is of the Holy Spirit. And I regard that as a most valuable gift. The more I think about it, perhaps this is what is needed. We may want a gift of miracles or a gift of prophecy or a gift of healing. But there comes a time when, whether in a revival atmosphere or just a revolutionary age, uh, you'll want that gift. Uh, in the time of revival, you're going to have the counterfeit, the false, the phony. In the revolutionary age, you need discernment for the times. And then there's no greater uh, gift than to be able to recognize the Holy Spirit. You know, 
whenever you can say, that is of God. Another says, I don't think it could be. But if a person has the gift of an anointing of discernment, he can sense when God's at work. Whereas another person say, that's the flesh, or another say, that's the devil. And so you can see how valuable this gift is. The anointing of speaking in tongues. Verse 10. The Greek word glossa, I've already referred to, they used to talk about the glossolalia movement. Uh, what is tongues? It is unintelligible, but inspired speech in a language one has never learned and which he does not understand. It may be an angelic language, it may be human language, or it may be still another language that Satan doesn't know. As I said recently, it's been said that when you speak in tongues, or rather pray in tongues, it's the only time the devil doesn't know what you're saying. And uh, he, uh, you're speaking in a language you don't understand, he doesn't. And so it could be a language that no one knows. It's often called a prayer language, and I would have thought that uh, there are two purposes of the gift of tongues. One is worship, and the other is intercession. Now, you may wish we could spend a little more time on that, uh, but I'm just giving an overview of these gifts. It heightens communion with God, and uh, it is important. Uh, Paul uh, doesn't put it down. He just wants it to be put in perspective, and it's, it's often called a prayer language. Then there is the anointing of interpretation of tongues. That assumes that the tongue that one was speaking, even though he doesn't know what he's saying, does have a meaning and can be interpreted. I would have thought the rarest gift of all is, is to interpret a tongue. And it's, it's easy for one person to stand up and give an interpretation, but the test would be if another person stood up and wrote down, or they both wrote it down, then they stood up and read what the interpretation is, see if it was the same thing. And uh, so we've got to be careful. Uh, just because one other person stands up doesn't always mean it's, it's accurate. Uh, it is a very rare gift. If it is used publicly and in the spirit, it could be a great evangelistic tool, uh, which is tantamount to prophecy. And <coughs> uh, you can see why Paul could say that uh, tongues is for the unbeliever, because if the gift of tongues that is being spoken happens to be in the language of a person from a remote place and he hears it, he will say, that's got to be of God. Or if the, if the interpretation is prophetic, it would be awesome. The last two gifts I mention are at the end of the chapter. Uh, the authorized version talks about the gift of helps. I refer to it as the forgotten anointing. It's the person who just wants to help people. Doesn't have a very high profile, uh, but we're going to come to that next week when we talk about discovering your gift. Then the anointing of leadership. Uh, uh, it comes from a word uh, which in the NIV is translated gift of administration. It means piloting a ship through dangerous waters. It's both a natural ability and presence of the mind of the spirit. Well, I'm going to have to close. I hope uh, we haven't gone too fast, but I wanted to cover a lot of territory and give an overview of these gifts. Remember this. 
there are as many gifts of the Spirit as there are believers. You are unique. No one has them all that I know of. And God will use you as you are. The second thing, we'll come to this next week, we are encouraged to desire the greater gifts. So it's not wrong to want the gift of discerning of spirits or, or prophecy. But then we must come to terms with our own anointing and admit what we don't have. And so next time, discovering your own gift. All right. Any questions? If so, these two microphones are for you. Here they come. Two on this side. We're going to fill up the microphone here. I'll try to be brief with your questions, and I'll try to get right to the point with my answers. But at 8.30, we will stop. Someone come over to this microphone if you've got a question. All right? Dr. Kendall, you made reference to the uh, Full Square Gospel earlier on. Yeah. And the one classic way of uh, phrasing that is to see the fourfold office of Christ as Saviour, Healer, Baptizer, and Coming King. Calvin, well, maybe you know more about it than I did. I didn't know you were a member of the Four Square Church, brother. But... No, hang on. That wasn't my question. Oh. Calvin saw the, a threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. What do, does the two different perspectives uh, tell us? One thing that I noticed straight away is Christ as prophet is a teacher, whereas Christ as saviour, healer, baptizer, and coming king, there is no reference to his teaching ministry. Do you think that that has any relevance to assessing the charismatic and Pentecostal movement? I haven't thought about it till this second, and uh, uh, I think uh, I would be loath to say uh, offhand that it does, because I think God raises up uh, certain uh, uh, works uh, as a protest movement sometimes because uh, I think if the Puritans had been what they ought to be there never would have been Methodism. If Methodists had been what they ought to be there would never have been Salvation Army. And, uh, and if the church today had been what it ought to have been there wouldn't have been a charismatic movement because we all should have been charismatics. So I think that I wouldn't want to be too hard, Alan, on the four square people because they uh, didn't produce... Uh, many theologians, but there are not many theologians today anyway. But I get your point, and I wouldn't want to say more. All right, this brother was next, and we'll come to you. Come ahead. Dr. Kendall, I'd just like to um, draw your attention to a passage in Kings, 1 Kings 13. It's yep. referring to the man of God from Judah. It's quite an interesting use of the gift of prophecy. Um, I came across a passage recently, and if you can, I'd like you to elaborate on it. Well, where is it? 1, 1 Kings 13. 13. It's when a prophet causes another prophet to sin. Oh, yeah. And then God immediately gives the first prophet I know. the prophetic it's a hard word. One. That takes a whole sermon, and I've not preached on that before, and I have no word of knowledge for tonight on that one. <laughs> Man, I, yeah, I did. I thought I handled that pretty well. Okay. Well, one thing, um, thank you very much for saying I'm unique. I'm glad you said that. I was waiting for you to say that from your words, that Man, I'm unique. Anybody really. who knows you would say that anyway. <laughs> I, did, I didn't need anointing on me to say that. <laughs> well, thank you very anybody much. Anybody want to be over here now? We're going to stop when he's finished if there's nobody over here. Come ahead. Right. 
Can you tell me what the difference is um, between the gifts and spiritual blessings? Because in Ephesians um, 1, chapter 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So is there a difference between spiritual blessings and the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Uh, yeah, I think there is. Uh, we're, we've all, you could have also quoted from 1 Corinthians 1, where Paul says we've all got every gift in us, so that the potential for all of them is inside us. Uh, but I think the fact that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing doesn't mean uh, that there's not also the specific anointing for a particular task. Uh, not all are apostles, not all are teachers, not all are prophets. Uh, we've all been given blessing, but uh, there will be a calling within that general blessing. So I think there is a difference. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, dear? Um, can you have a gift of faith for people to be saved? Or is that a prophecy? Oh, a gift of faith for a person to be saved, or is it a prophecy? Well, I've never had uh, either of those that I know. I've heard of them. I've heard of them uh, secondhand. I wouldn't want to rule out the possibility. Uh, but if a person knew that so-and-so would be saved, I would probably call it prophetic rather than faith, but I don't know. I haven't thought about that. I know, uh, I know uh, of one story of one man who's uh, a member of this church and is pretty well known now in Britain who uh, told a story uh, that he called out a, a woman in the service and said, your husband will be saved tomorrow within 24 hours. And his name is Alex. And the woman's son was seated over here and, and my brother friend uh, felt the son thinking, oh no, this is going to discourage my mother because she, my father's in Washington, D.C. This was in California. There's no way that he's going to get here by tomorrow night. And besides, he's Muslim. And then uh, the man pointed to the son and says, you, brother, and called his name. You don't believe what I've just said to your mother. And just for that, he's going to be saved, coming into the kingdom tomorrow night in tears. And he, they found out suddenly he was called back from Washington. He came in at 5 o'clock, and at 7 o'clock he was weeping on the front row and was converted. So that can happen. That's unusual. Whether to call that faith or prophecy, you tell me. That's very unusual. I've never had anything like that. I wouldn't mind seeing more of it. wouldn't mind seeing more of it. Time to quit. Next week, we pursue this matter. How can you and I discover our own gift and how God may use us? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, apply this word given tonight by your Spirit. May it instill in us a desire to seek after you more than ever, to know you better. Thank you for the encouragement to covet earnestly the best gifts, but may we give priority to the most excellent way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next time.